0: mm (목소리도) 고맙습니다. Good morning and welcome to our service. We're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. I invite you to stand and join with me in the call to worship printed in your bulletin. We'll read responsively this morning. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So we know and rely on the love God has for us.
1: He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the Almighty.
0: We will say of the Lord, He is our refuge and our our God, in whom we trust. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.
2: Amen, amen, God's kingdom is forever And that's why we're here in worship today We're glad you're a part of this gathering Before you're seated, share a word of grace and and peace With others who are here in worship today Well, we welcome you to our worship service today and uh, glad that you're here. Just a couple of things I want to highlight in terms of uh, things happening in the life of the church. Next Sunday, we gather for worship at 8, 20, 40, and 11 and note that next Sunday is the end of daylight saving time. So you turn your clocks back an hour and you get an extra hour of sleep. So uh, just note, uh, note that for next Sunday. Uh, Also, there are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, and we want to add to this actually a uh, a celebration. Uh, We're celebrating the birth of Grace and Michael Cox to uh, Mike and Amanda and Sister Evie on Tuesday. I'm a little actually surprised that Amanda's not here today, but I don't know, this whole (laughs) maternity leave thing. Um, She actually will be uh, on maternity leave for the next two months, and so I appreciate uh, Mark Hitchley and others who are filling in for her while she is uh, gone, and we uh, just continue to pray a blessing upon Grayson and their family at this gift of new life.
1: Child generation
3: My name is Stacy, and I want to share with you one of the most powerful experiences that I've had in the prayer room over my couple years of being involved. Um, It was my first time that I saw the king's throne. For some of you who have participated before, you might remember it. For other of you who haven't participated yet or can't remember, the scene was breathtaking. You would turn into the corner of the second room of the prayer room, and it would just be there in front of you. And I found myself just standing there in the doorway, trying to take it all in. The wall was covered from floor to ceiling with this beautiful and majestic purple curtain that served as the backdrop to an elegant and royal chair. The way it sat on the elevated platform in the center of a spotlight caused me to simply stand in awe. This was not just another chair for anyone to sit in. It was a chair fit for a king, as the crown that sat upon it suggested. It was a chair for our God, the eternal king, to come. The rest of my hour was spent on the floor in front of that chair. The identity of God as king became very real and tangible for me on that day in the prayer room. I remembered Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 and found myself bowing before the throne as I considered how awesome and majestic our God is and that he's worthy of our worship. There were other moments that I knelt in humble submission before the throne as I considered the great power and authority that God has over all creation. But most of the time I just sat there, I sat there overwhelmed by the reality that God, this reigning and eternal king who has all power and authority, doesn't choose to lord over me as a tyrant, but out of his love lets me choose my response. Will I choose to continue trying to control every aspect of my life, or will I choose to trust in the character of God? On that day in the prayer room, I think I made the right choice, but to be honest, that's not always my response, which is perhaps what makes prayer so difficult for me. Prayer is a form of submission. Because in praying, I'm saying that I can't do this on my own. I need you, God. But as I'm saying, I need you, God, he's wanting to take it a step further and asks, Will you trust me, Stacy? Will you stop trying to manipulate the situation and let me start reigning in this area of your life as you begin to pray? And in some cases, I'm like, Yeah, I think I can do that. In others, it's scary. It's scary when, our prayer about, when it's our prayer about our greatest anxieties, our needs for today, our worries about tomorrow, or that desire of our heart that doesn't seem to get answered. It's scary to relinquish control and pray when we have a specific result in mind, a healing from cancer, protection over a loved one, or a job situation, because we're afraid it might not be the yes that we're looking for. But it slowly becomes easier to trust in God and the power of prayer when we realize that God is powerful and in control and that our anxieties do not surprise or intimidate God. It becomes easier to trust in him when we know that he loves us and works for the good of those who love him. And I'm not saying that prayer will change God into some sort of vending machine, getting whatever we ask out of him, but rather that prayer is the method that God uses to change us. Through prayer, God's will becomes our will, and we are transformed into being the people God created us to be. And through prayer, God will work. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, Then if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Today, as we enter the prayer vigil, and over the next few weeks as we pray, let's be a people of prayer, that surrender our desire to control every aspect of our lives over to this God so that he might find a people who are willing to fall more in love with him and ready for him to do a great and mighty work among us.
2: Thank you, Stacy. As she mentioned, we start the prayer vigil tonight at 5 o'clock when the first uh, person will go into the room to pray. And our goal is that for the next 505 hours, 504 hours, that uh, we will be praying and uh, over the next three weeks. We uh, would love for you to be involved if you haven't been. If you have been, uh, you know something of that experience. You can sign up this morning before you leave. There's a uh, sign up in the back. and We'll do, get you signed up. I know the first couple of days of this week are completely full. Uh, there are some times available in the, uh, in the middle of the week on, and then we'll be opening up uh, the next week as uh, we move on through this week. Uh, also, uh, if, you, if you'd like to look at the prayer room, there are a lot of things there that are the same, uh, things that we have kept the same that I know have been meaningful to people. We've also done some new things. Stacy mentioned about the throne. That was sort of the focal point last year. This year, the focal point is a chair with uh, the, the symbolic fire of the Holy Spirit and the dove representing the Holy Spirit over us. And you sit in the chair, and there's a sense of, of asking the Holy Spirit to come on us as God, as he did at Pentecost and in people's lives. And so that's just one more way to, um, to experience prayer in the room. And there are lots of other things that are there. I'd encourage you, to after the service, just go downstairs and take a tour of the room. So you just kind of see what's there. And uh, and then sign up to be a part of it. You can sign up online anytime or call the church office and we'll help you with that. Also today then at, at 4 o'clock, we're going to have a sort of a kickoff gathering to uh, move us into the beginning of the prayer vigil. Uh, Koinonia will be here at the church at four, and we're going to be joining into that as a part of our preparing for the prayer vigil. We'll have an opportunity not just to sing together, but also to offer prayers together and uh, at the end of the service to surround the the sanctuary with candles and to ask God to do something miraculous for us during these days together. So let me encourage you so if you have never been a part of the prayer vigil or been in the prayer room to pray, I encourage you to do that. Most people at the beginning would say, I don't know what I'd do for an hour. And then people come out and say, that just was not long enough. Uh, there are just so many ways to engage God in prayer and to expand our understanding of prayer. So we hope you will be a part of this event. And we're asking God to do something amazing and miraculous for us as individuals and for us as a corporate body of believers that will go far, far, far beyond any of our lives. The key verse for the
0: uh, prayer vigil this year is Ephesians 1:18, which uh, reads as follows, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called uh, his holy people who are his rich and
3: glorious inheritance. Thank mm-hmm.
0: Our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning comes from Judges chapter 7, selected verses. This is a passage that details how the Israelites rejected God and therefore became slaves of Midian, and after seven years of hardship, they cried out to God, uh, who then called on Gideon to save them, and chapter 7 picks up the story as Gideon is gathering the Israelite army so I invite you to stand with me for the, uh, the reading of the, the Scripture, and uh, then remain standing for the Gloria Patri. <clears throat> Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, "'You have too many men.'" I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. This is the word of the Lord. If our ushers will come forward at this time, we'll receive our morning tithes and offerings. you have given us so much. You have blessed us in so many ways. This morning, Lord, as we give back to you just a small portion of all that you have given to us, we pray that you would receive these tithes and these offerings. And may they be a blessing to you, and may they be used for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
2: we draw drawn near to God in prayer. If you'd like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Father, thank you that you call us to draw near to you. We don't have to beg you or try to convince you to want us close. It's a part of your character creating us to be close to you. As we sense and hear that call, we, we know how unworthy we are. We recognize the the sin in our lives, the the struggles that we face, the, the times when we turn our own way instead of your way. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers of confession, and let us hear your word of forgiveness. Father, we come today with burdens and struggles. Illness, grief, loss that comes to us in a variety of ways. We feel uncertainty about what lies ahead, or we're disappointed about the present. There are hurts and pains that we've experienced so deep, and they they control us. And Lord, today we ask that you will heal. Hear our prayers. <laughs> Father, we know there are so many in the world who do not have the basic necessities of life, and we also know there are. Many, many people who are suffering from the effects of natural disasters, earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and all kinds of events. And we ask that you will bring your grace in each situation, that you'll watch over your church throughout this world and hear our prayers for the people of this world and their needs. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to pray. As we're moving into this prayer vigil, we ask that you would do something miraculous. Help us to come in a spirit of openness, desiring what you desire to give, wanting you to work in our lives individually and corporately. We pray that these three weeks of prayer will be monumental for each of us. Father, we thank you that you have called us to pray and that your call is rooted in your love and mercy for us. We ask, Father, that as we offer these prayers that you will not only hear us as you promised to, but that you will answer in the way that you know is best through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer,
0: Our New Testament Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. I'll be reading this morning from the TNIV, Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love.
2: I don't think any of us would argue that we live in a world that is not exactly what God intended it to be. We, we live in a world where we often feel uncomfortable, where we feel like the values that are important to us are not important. We're engaged in what many people call culture wars, where we're fighting to see what the culture is going to end up looking like and where it's going to go. And the question that comes to us in the midst of that is, what do we do? What's our role in that? How do we respond? Where do we go? What do we say? Eugene Peterson says that typically there are two responses fall into one of two categories. Either we sink into a quicksand of paranoia and live in panic and do everything we can to keep evil at a distance, go into a shell, or we join forces with demagogues and moralists and defenders of purity, and we vilify and mount crusades and define ourselves by what we're against and live lives of negative spirituality. And most of the public persona of the church tends to fall into one of those two categories. But Paul has been telling us throughout this letter that there is a different way. He's been been hinting at it as he goes along, but now as he comes to the end, it is full front and focus of everything that he says. It's a plan, it's a strategy that I think goes against the grain of how we tend to think and how the culture tells us things get done. It is a strategy that rejects the culture's uh, idea of how to how to accomplish things in the world, how to change the culture, and instead is very countercultural and counterintuitive because it's the strategy of Christ. It kind of seems crazy when you think about it that Paul says, "I want you to fight. I want you to put on armor." in this battle that we're fighting in the world, and the armor I want you to use and the weapons I want you to use are truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the scriptures. What do you think? Those weapons really don't seem to measure up to the weapons that the world is using against us. It sort of feels like sometimes that we're armed with slingshots and everybody else has tanks. You know, we've got a cap gun, and they've got automatic weapons. Or we're flying in a Sopwith camel, and they're in F-22 jet fighters. Which I think is one of the reasons why we have a hard time with this strategy. I think that's how Gideon felt. You know, he, God says, all right, I want you to defeat the Midianites who have been holding Israel in slavery. And so he gets 32,000 men, which honestly isn't all that many compared to the Midianite army... But it's a good number of people, and God says, that's way too many guys to win this battle. What kind of a strategy is that? So he sends 22,000 home, and the Lord says 10,000, still too many. Send home 9,700 of them. And with 300 men armed with lanterns and trumpets, they go into battle. But when the dust clears, the Midianites are fleeing for their lives, and Israel has their nation back. The strategy that Paul's talking about here and the armor he wants us to put on doesn't mean that God is unconcerned about the world. Actually, he's more concerned than we are. It's just that he knows better than we do that the change we're hoping for in this world is not going to come through politics. It's not really about power. It's not about how we measure success. It's about life transformation. And that transformation begins with us not the world outside of us. I'm convinced that God would rather have us have us be people who love and not accomplish the things in society that we think we should than to accomplish the things in society we think we should by any other strategy than what Christ has. Because the moment we stop using the strategy of Christ, we have already lost. So when Christians make exaggerated or disrespectful or vitriolic comments about the president or a member of Congress or or anyone who might be in favor of something we're against, we are skewing God's reputation just as much as the behavior we're condemning. When we engage in this kind of behavior, whether it's from a distance or face to face, we are revealing an appalling lack of trust that God knows what he's doing And that God's way of doing it is best. I have this sense that the evangelical church is subtly saying, you know, Lord, this world is a mess. And um, we're a little concerned that your way of fixing it isn't really working. It's a little too slow. It's a little too naive. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But we've discovered that there's a better strategy. Because we've discovered the big always beats small. That strong always beats weak. We've discovered that what you need is a political action group. And, and those are pretty successful, so we're going to do what they do. And we're going to boycott and picket, and, and we're going to threaten, and we're going to create smear campaigns. Because sometimes you have to exaggerate the truth to get people on board with you. You have to create an atmosphere of fear in order to get people to see that things need to be different. And we've discovered that when you're connected to power, things get done even if it sometimes means compromising our values. Lord, I know this is a little different than what you had planned, but we like it. And if you gave it a chance, I think you'd like it too. I, mean, I think that's the subtle message that we're sending to God. Now, Christians don't avoid politics. In fact, engaging in God's strategy probably will move us further into politics. But we just do it with a different spirit. We do it with a different strategy. We do it in a way that is countercultural to what everyone else is doing. Instead of operating in the political realm from a position of power and strength, we operate in the political realm from a position of weakness and humility, just like Jesus. I mean, when do you ever see Jesus crushing someone in order to accomplish salvation for us? When do we see Christ grabbing for power to bring to the world what it needs? When do we see Christ pushing people around, pushing people to the to the periphery so God can be proclaimed? And if the strategy really worked, then Christ would have used it. But the goal of Christ's battle plan is not to set up a theocracy that forces everyone to, to follow God but rather it is to so live like Christ that people are drawn to God through seeing him in us. The post-Soviet fighting between the Mujahideen, the rise of the Taliban, the terrorist camps, all of that resulted in thousands of Afghans fleeing to Pakistan. These people ended up in refugee camps in which the conditions were abominable the children would run around barefoot and it didn't matter if it was intense heat or intense cold, they had no shoes. And the Christian organization heard about this and decided they wanted to do something about it and so they brought thousands of sandals for these children. But they also decided that instead of just giving the sandals to the children, they wanted to wash their feet first. And so the children came one by one and they washed their feet and they treated the sores on their feet and they gave them the sandals and they said a silent prayer for them. A few months later, a primary school teacher in the area asked her children who the best Muslims were. And a little girl put up her hand, and she said, the, uh, the kafirs, the disbelievers. Well, when the teacher sort of recovered from a cardiac arrest, she said, why? And the little girl said, because the Majahideen killed my father, but the kafirs washed my feet. What do you think that little girl is going to think about Jesus and Christians? We need to consider how we can be advocates for people who have no voice, and it's important for us to do that. But we understand that the world will not be changed primarily through politics or legislation or a call to morality or blue laws or a better work ethic or or a, a well reasoned argument. But only when the church begins to look and act like Jesus, which happens only as we embrace, completely embrace the strategy of Christ, that seems strange to us and to so many people. Not too long ago, I saw long ago I saw a commercial for Directv, and uh, these family is people are sitting around in a lawyer's office, and he's reading the will of this. Uh, really rich man. You know, I mean, he's got tons of money, and he owns islands and planes and all this stuff. And as he's reading the will, it's evident that he has left all of his fortune to other people than the family. And they're all sitting there steaming. You can see it. They are so upset. And then they, the lawyer says, and finally, to my only son, Chauncey, I leave my collection of, I leave my direct TV and his vast collection of hundreds of movies and shows. And the guy stares, and all of a sudden, this smile comes across his face, and he begins jumping around the room going, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. This is awesome. And the family is just staring at him like, you're an idiot. What is wrong with you? Don't you know what just happened here? And when I saw that commercial, I thought to myself, I think that's how we sometimes feel in the church. That's how people make us feel. Sometimes the church makes us feel that way. When you embrace the strategy of Christ, you look naive. You look like you don't really understand how the world operates. You don't really get it. And that's not just a message that comes from the culture around us. That's a message the church sends us at times as well. Our struggle to, to embrace Christ's strategy, we're convinced, the problem is, we're convinced that the enemy is our culture. It's society, it's the people who hate us or disagree with us or see things differently than we do. And so we fight against them and we're railing against them and that's where our attack goes. But Paul says, no, 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 our enemy are the principalities and the powers of darkness. Our enemy is not the culture. Our enemy is, is the evil one and the powers of darkness that he controls. The evil one whose goal is separation and hate and resentment and ultimately death and destruction. Paul says the problem is spiritual. And if the problem is spiritual, then the solution is spiritual. Which is why prayer is so vital to the strategy of Christ. Paul talks about prayer more than he does any of the other weapons. It's like the capstone of the whole arsenal. Prayer is so significant because only in prayer, in honest, open, selfless, surrendered prayer, prayer that doesn't end when we say amen, but goes with us as we live our lives, only in that kind of prayer we get connected to the heart of God and we see things with the eyes of God. That's why we're doing these prayer vigils. Because we want to present an opportunity for all of us to surrender ourselves to the Spirit so that we can see the world the way Christ does. To sit in that chair and to sense the Holy Spirit coming upon us is to ask God to give us new eyes and new ears and a new attitude and a new heart about what exactly is going on in this world. In prayer, we're declaring that nothing is more important than connecting ourselves with God. And nothing's more significant to this spiritual struggle than opening our hearts to God And nothing's more powerful than giving God every opportunity to speak into our lives so that we can go forth bearing the armor of God. Paul's not saying that we then pray and do nothing. Rather, the prayers that please God are the ones that lead us into the world to live what we've prayed. There's a sign on the wall of the prayer room. It's the last thing you'll see as you walk out. And it says, may God bless you as you go forth to live your prayers. And that's the goal. That by connecting ourselves with God through prayer, using that part of the armor, it changes us. And we live differently. And we see this world differently. And we embrace more openly the strategy of Christ have an influence in this world for Christ. Prayer is the only way to win the battle for the kingdom of God. Because only in prayer are we connecting ourselves to the one who has all the power, and I mean all the power. See, sometimes we think we have some power. That if the evil one comes against us with some little stuff, we can handle that. Because, you know, we've got some power here. And we think it's about us and what we can do we can't do anything without the power of Christ. But we're, in prayer, we're tapping into the power of the one who has already won the battle. He's already defeated the evil one. It's done. And Tim Gomba says, it's not our task to defeat the powers. God's already defeated them in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The church is called to inhabit the victory that God's already accomplished. And this is why the only weapons we use are the weapons that God uses when he has won the battle. But Paul understands that this armor is most effective, that it has power for us when we stand together. In verse 14, Paul talks about standing firm. And I have an image in my mind, not of one person standing against an army, but an army of God's people standing ready to do battle with the principalities and the powers. And in our hands are not the artillery of anger and violence and retribution and power and success, but faithfulness and peace and love and humility and surrender and sacrifice. See, when we ignore or minimize the importance of the church, we lose the power of our spiritual armor. I'm not sure we really believe that because we've been told in subtle ways and in overt ways that the strongest Christians are the ones who can stand alone. Those are the people who have the power of God in their lives. They don't need anybody else, they stand by themselves. That's a lie. Paul's been telling us that over and over and over again. The people who stand strong for God, the people who are spiritually mature understand that they can only stand together. Only when the power of God is joined, when we're joined together in his power and his grace, not when we're trying to stand by ourselves. When Jesus is facing the cross, he doesn't push his disciples away. He says, come, pray with me. We've become so enamored and mesmerized by our culture that we think the most profound need for transformation can take place in us individually, but it can't. It's us together. And the need for the transformation is really not the culture. The most profound need for transformation is in you and me. It's in God's people, the church. We're the problem because we keep pushing aside the strategy of Christ, thinking that our strategy is better than his. And I know why we do that. It's because his strategy, honestly, is a lot harder. And it sometimes doesn't make sense. And our strategy makes sense to us. It's what everybody else is doing. So let's use it. And no wonder we aren't making a difference in the world. No wonder people say the church has nothing to offer me that anybody else does. Why would I care about that? But when we engage ourselves with Christ, when we put on his armor, something happens. The power of God comes into us because we've opened ourselves to God and things begin to change. I think the greatest compliment someone could pay us as a congregation is not that we offer great worship services or we know the Bible or we're... We're concerned about social justice, as important as those things are, but that we're people who pray. And they know that because they see us living out our prayers in our daily lives. Pete Gregg said God is mobilizing an army, but it's a broken army that marches on its knees. As our commander-in-chief inspects the ranks of his wounded, weeping soldiers, he speaks to you and he speaks to me, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. On a Monday evening in 1982, a small group of Lutherans gathered at St. Nikolai Church And began to pray. Now, we wouldn't think that much about that. We can gather and pray anytime we want to. But this was East Germany. It was during the height of communism. And for them to come together to pray was a real risk. The churches had been, many of them, burned to the ground. Others had been emptied and used for other purposes. And Christians in East Germany faced a tough road. And just coming together to pray... Was a risky venture. But they had to, and they came together and they prayed. They prayed for peace and for justice and for transformation of what was going on in their country. And every Monday they came and they prayed. Week after week, and month after month, and even year after year, and nothing seemed to be any different. And after a few years of praying like this, others began to hear what they were doing. And decided that if this little band of people could come together and pray, people who really weren't, didn't look all that impressive and didn't have any influence, then maybe they ought to try it too. And so they began to pray in their churches. And in cities all throughout East Germany, people began to come together and they began to pray. And the crowds began to grow. And every Monday when people came to pray, the churches were packed with people. And all of a sudden, the winds of change began to blow. And things looked different. And this once docile people began to rise up and to speak. And after a while, the the communist regime began to crumble. And eventually, so did the Berlin Wall, that for 28 years stood as the symbol of the Iron Curtain. And it all began when a few people decided to come together and to pray. One communist leader admitted later to a journalist, we were ready for every eventuality, but we were not prepared for people to pray. I wonder what would happen in this nation, in this world, if we stopped fighting with each other and we... Stop vilifying those who oppose us. Stop using the strategy that everybody else is using and started praying and loving and reaching out and going the second mile. And not because it would necessarily make life easier for us, but because we have embraced the strategy of Christ to see something miraculous take place in us and in us. And in this world. As I read through the scriptures, I realize there is no plan B. There is no other strategy. This is it. This has been God's plan from the beginning of time that His people would represent Him in this world in a spirit of love and humility and peace and grace and truth and righteousness. We're simply asked to believe. That this is the right plan. That it's the best plan. And to trust our lives. That God's plan is going to do and accomplish what only God can do. Please pray with me. Perhaps as we've been thinking about this passage, God has put something... In your mind, about a part of life where you realize you've really bought into a strategy that is not of Christ. As we pray silently, confess that to God and hear his words of forgiveness. Father, as we have confessed to you, we thank you for your words of pardon to us. Give us new eyes, new hearts. Give us courage to embrace your strategy. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. invite you to stand as we sing together hymn number 352. Benediction. May you, being rooted and established in love, have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.